1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Servillo, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Gary Bruce about his excellent new book, Through the Lion Gate A History of the Berlin Zoo, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Gary, hello, and welcome to the show.
0: Hello, Craig, and
1: thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Well, Gary, we like to begin these interviews, as always, with asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Happy to. I uh I grew up in the province of Quebec in Canada in a uh, French speaking town in far in the north and uh ended up doing my undergraduate studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario uh where I was uh, very interested in history so of course I majored in chemistry um because I was worried about the job market mm-hmm. uh but quickly realized that uh, uh university is really for what moves you what you're interested in uh, and not simply about job preparation. So I switched to history, and uh, I'm very glad I did. Uh, obviously it obviously turned out to be the right choice for me. Uh, when I was in third year of undergraduate studies at Queen's University, I opted for an exchange program and went over to Glasgow University, which was a riotous year. Uh, and it was also momentous for me personally, because it was 1989-1990 that I was there. And as you and your listeners will well know, uh, in the fall of 1989, something dramatic happened in uh, Berlin when the wall fell. Uh, I then visited Berlin in April 1990, uh, which was a fascinating time to be there, because it was when the GDR still existed, uh, the wall had no meaning anymore, but it was still up. It was physically still standing. So when I arrived in April 1990 in Berlin, I remember getting off the train and heading towards uh, the center of town, where uh, it sounded as if a bunch of people were clinking glasses at a wedding when you want the bride and groom to kiss. Uh, that constant sound, relatively loud, getting louder as I got to the center. And, of course, it was what uh, what uh, people then called uh, these wall woodpeckers, uh, people chipping away at the Berlin Wall with their hammers and anything else that they might have had. Uh, so I joined them, and I also chipped away at the Berlin Wall. Uh, I still have the pieces in my office. Uh, so that was, that was life-changing for me uh, to see this moment in German history uh, to experience it so viscerally, and I then, uh, after I finished my studies at Queen's, went to the University of New Brunswick in Eastern Canada for my Master's, and then moved on to McGill University in Montreal, in so many ways going back home for me, uh, where I did my PhD under Peter Hoffman, uh, who is uh, very well known for his work on the resistance to Hitler. Uh, and then at that time, I was also interested in resistance work, but uh, because of the recently opened archives in East Germany, I opted to uh, do something on East German resistance rather than World War II. And uh, that was my first book, uh, Resistance with the People. I dealt a lot with the June uh, 1953 uprising as well in that book. Uh, and moving on from that, after I, I got an academic position, I wrote uh, The Firm, The Inside Story of the Stasi. So it was in many ways sort of a follow-up to the book on resistance, uh, especially because I'd spent so much time in Stasi Files uh, looking uh, for, my, for information on my first book. Uh, and then this is a departure. This, this book on the Berlin Zoo is quite a departure for me.
1: Yeah, I, was, uh, I wanted to change. The, yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say I was just going to ask you as to as to why now then a change to the Berlin Zoo.
0: Well, uh, I, I suppose like like East Germans, you know, I was getting a bit tired of the Stasi myself, <laughs> um, and I uh, I wanted to change the scenery, and I happened upon this book by Diane Ackerman called The Zookeeper's Wife, which uh, recently became a, a movie, but at the time it was quite a, a quite a popular book. And uh, uh it's about the Warsaw Zoo and the zookeeper there and his wife who harbored Jews while they're trying to tend to this uh, makeshift and very sad zoo in Warsaw during the war. And I uh, was really uh, fascinated by the story and it got me thinking about what happened to German zoos during the war. And so I took a foray into the archives and uh found some information that I thought was intriguing and just uh, continued from there.
1: Hmm. So this is obviously a topic that not a lot has been written about particularly in english Um, i believe yours is the only book in english on the berlin zoo um so i'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with the history of it if you could give just some background into the founding of the zoo um its first directors um just just very brief
0: Mm -hmm. uh it was the first zoo established in germany there had been other zoos established in Europe prior to the Berlin Zoo, um, most notably London uh, in 1826, uh, which became the flagship zoo for Europe and in many ways of the world um, because of the access it had to its uh, to the Empire, that could bring in a tremendous, tremendous variety and number of exotic animals. Um, the Berlin Zoo didn't have that advantage, but uh, it it grew out of the uh, the King's Menagerie that had been on Peacock Island. Uh, just outside of Berlin, which is still there a lovely a lovely day trip for a lot of Berliners and guests as well uh, So it was established in in 1844 and the real driving forces were a zoology professor called Martin Liechtenstein Who had uh, been in South Africa and had uh, traveled to London as well? one of these worldly sort of upper middle-class Germans who was very curious about the world and, uh, was eager to, to bring some of that information to Berliners, uh, through an, a display of the natural world in, uh, what would become the Berlin Zoo. And the other, uh, driving force is, was his, uh, friend and colleague, um, Alexander von Humboldt, uh, who will be, uh, very familiar to, uh, you and, uh, listeners, uh, Alexander von Humboldt, the greatest naturalist of, uh, of uh, Germany's history, and uh, a very, very popular individual—lectures uh, sold out, books sold out. Uh, uh, he, he, his influence was tremendous in getting a uh, getting a zoo in the Prussian capital.
1: Hmm. Um, now, you mentioned a little bit that there was and grew out right of the king's menagerie. Um, was the zoo originally intended for sort of a more upper crust audience or did they view it as a, as a way to engage the, the larger public workers? Um, how important was that in their thinking?
0: Well, it was very important, uh, and it actually stands in stark contrast to the London Zoo. The London Zoo is really designed as a display of animals for the London Zoological Society and their guests and friends and family, so quite limited. Uh, working class really is not envisaged. But the Berlin Zoo is quite the opposite. Uh, it's open to the public, uh, to all members of the public, from uh, the day it opens its doors in 1844. And it also is very sensitive to price. So the board wants to make sure that there's opportunities for uh, people of all income levels to visit it. Uh, This means having the occasional sort of cheap Sunday and specials and that kind of thing. And uh, they're also really committed to having the zoo accessible to school groups. So uh, just, about, uh, uh, just about any school in Berlin would have access for field trips to the zoo. So it was quite advanced that way, quite egalitarian in its thinking.
1: Um, particularly in the early years of the zoo, some of the most popular exhibits seem to be humans. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about one why they were so popular? Um, and, and I'll ask you some follow-ups about colonialism in a second. Um, but just sort of sketch us out how these exhibits came to be, um, where the idea came from, and and then we'll go from there.
0: Sure. Uh, the I, I think this was the the aspect of the zoo that uh, I found most surprising, and uh, really even as I was writing that chapter, I had to pause numerous times and, and give this some real thought about fact that uh, we were dealing with humans in the zoo rather than animals which is what we are which is our frame of reference today Uh, so the real impetus comes from an individual called Carl Hagenbeck Carl Hagenbeck uh, comes from a gritty uh, area of Hamburg Uh, he's an entrepreneur and he realizes very quickly that the zoos that are springing up Throughout Europe uh, are going to need a supply of animals and he becomes a tycoon in the exotic animal trade he also realizes that, that there will come a time when the zoos have enough animals and that uh, if he wants to sustain his empire he will need something else and he brings to the Berlin Zoo at one point some reindeer from Scandinavia and he has uh, the the, uh, indigenous people, they're the Laps, uh, Laplanders. He has them uh, accompany these reindeer. So it's not really an ethnographic display as we would come to know them, but it's the first inkling, it's the first idea that he has that maybe people could also be displayed, so-called exotic people from around the world. Uh, And he begins with a group of uh, Inuit from Greenland, in the Berlin Zoo very small group and over time these shows grow they grow to be quite enormous uh, with uh, sometimes 50 60 people uh, bringing animals along and uh, they are displayed in not cages in the zoo but enclosures and they typically did uh, what would what we would call traditional uh, dances, uh, cooked traditional meals, uh, did crafts and that kind of thing for the entertainment of, of the Berliners who were watching. And these shows were staggeringly, staggeringly popular, and reaching even as many as a hundred thousand visitors on a day. Uh, I still remember one of my favorite stats that I found in the newspaper was that uh, uh, on on one day on one of these shows, because Berliners know these kinds of things, they're aware of them. Uh, Twenty three thousand liters of beer was served, so very very popular shows.
1: Yeah, I was I was struck by that reading the chapter, just how many people went um, <laughs> to see these people, um, and they would bring them all sorts of things, food, cash, tips. Um, and and I I do want to ask you about the people who are on display because you did tell one story of a group of them and I can't remember where they're from now um, who didn't want to leave (laughs) Uh, that's
0: right Uh, it was a Nubian group at the end of the 19th century so from uh, uh, today Egypt and uh, they were their time was up these shows typically lasted four or five sometimes six weeks uh, and then they would go on, often to another zoo in Europe or somewhere else. Um, they tended to be in Europe for for several months, and the time had come for them to leave the Berlin Zoo, and uh, they refused. This group of Nubians refused and defended themselves with uh, with chains and whips. Finally. The director of the Berlin Zoo at the time, a man called Bodinus, uh, he was g- quite, quite perturbed, didn't know what to do exactly, and called the police. And so the police came and eventually escorted these individuals onto, uh, onto the carriages that were waiting for them, and then the carriages brought them to the train station. Uh, and uh, it wasn't clear at the time exactly what had happened, but uh, now we've been able to piece together through newspapers and some other sources, including Carl Hagenbach's memoirs, that uh, uh, these uh, these Nubian men had formed romantic relationships with German women and were reluctant to leave them. Uh, so that's why they were they were uh, attempting as much as possible to stay in
1: Berlin. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that struck me about this chapter and that I really liked is that the people that were being displayed um, definitely had agency, um, and they, they seemed to figure out how to sort of work their circumstances the best they could, um, either for food, money, um, romantic relationships. Um, I mean, it's certainly not a good thing uh, that they were... On display like this, um, but you, you did you did attempt to sort of show their side of it um, in a way that I thought was insightful.
0: No, you're you're right. Uh, we can't deny the the paternalism and the the optics of having but uh, a group of people on display in a zoo. It's certainly, uh, we recognize the power relationship there. There's no question, but. I think we also make a mistake to assume that the, uh, individuals were simply passive and constantly being acted upon. That was also not the case. They, uh, they were frequently out of the zoo. They weren't supposed to be out of the zoo. Uh, they weren't, they were supposed to stay in the zoo, but they were frequently out of the zoo. And uh, we know this, we know this because uh, the organizers are constantly complaining that they don't want too much interaction between the individuals on display and the Berlin public, but it continues to happen, and they're seeing strolling, they're seeing strolling around Berlin and what have you. Uh, so I think it is important, it's important to recognize uh, some of the agency. They it was these individuals as well had formal contracts with the organizers. Uh, and in some cases, and again this isn't the measure of all things, but in some cases the, the contracts were relatively lucrative uh, that the individuals actually had some um, ended up with some uh, a relatively decent amount of money in their pockets and again that's that's not to say that these were um, uh, good practices by any means, but it's also worth recognizing. Um, I take your point very well here it's worth recognizing the agency of these individuals on display
1: Um, you mentioned in in your talk about the the history of the zoo that you know the Berlin Zoo is in stark contrast to say the London Zoo in terms of what it's for Um, and what I was surprised by was that sort of the reluctance of the Berlin Zoo to sort of be a symbol of colonialism and or a symbol of you know Germany's colonial you know, as their colonial possessions expanded, um, they didn't seem as willing or didn't seem to be their mission to put on display Germany's colonial power in the way that the London zoo clearly was, you know, they mm-hmm. had people and animals from all their colonies and they could draw from those colonies. Um, and in, in fact, in the, in the human chapter and the, about the human displays, you only one time did German colonials actually get put on display. Um, I'm wondering as to why this is. Given that Germany was in such a, a fever to compete on the colonial stage, um, why didn't the zoo as an institution um, sort of aid in that? Um, when, it, when it seems to later in, in German history seems to aid in certain you know, political projects. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, here I really have to tip my hat to one of the great originators of animal Human history, which is Harriet Ritvo and her great work, uh, *The Animal Estate*, because uh, she deals, she's the one who introduces this notion of, of um, uh, Britain's being able to participate in empire by going to the zoo. It's a great, it's a great analogy, and I think it captures an awful, awful lot about the mentality of the time. Uh, so that's that was my reference point, and that's where I didn't see the same kind of actions. In, uh, Berlin, I think one, one aspect was that Berlin was just late coming to the game. So, uh, coming to the colonial game. So 1844, the Berlin Zoo was established, but obviously Germany doesn't get colonies until 1884. So it's quite a long time that the Berlin Zoo is in existence. Uh, and by now they've, they've, they've established other kinds of patterns for the zoo, uh, including some some tremendous architecture and the human zoo is already happening by the time that Germany acquires colonies. So there's there's essentially just a different history uh, in Germany that that leads Berlin and its zoo into a different path. Uh, with the acquisition of colonies and where we do see a real connection is with the animals so uh, especially with the acquisition of german east africa so then the berlin zoo has much easier access to it to animals they don't necessarily even have to go through Karl Hagenbeck anymore they can send out their own expeditions uh, and they do uh, to acquire animals from from africa uh, so there the colonies do actually assist and there is a real connection, but it doesn't necessarily promote colonialism in that way. Uh, and you're right that the, the one group of Samoans uh, who visit, uh, who come to uh, Germany uh, and are displayed in the zoo and meet with the Kaiser and what have you, they, they are the first and last of the, the colonial um, subjects to come and be put on display in Berlin. Uh, and it's mostly because of the colonial societies, uh, the several prominent colonial societies in Germany's concerns about having that interaction. In fact, uh, what is maybe humorous from our standpoint is that they're worried about uh, the, the colonial peoples being, Unimpressed, having their views of Germans altered for the worse from coming in contact with them. Uh, somehow, this display of great power and great prowess and great industrial might and and an advanced society they feel will be damaged uh, the more that the Samoans actually come in contact with the Germans. So that's that is then uh, that's then called off, and it doesn't happen again. Uh, so it, it, I, I think, but just looking at the history of the period, you sort of see these. Why? Why colonialism doesn't necessarily find root in the Berlin Zoo the way it does in the London Zoo.
1: Um, so we're creeping up towards the First World War. Um, obviously, big, big changes, big shifts, um, and the zoo is 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 directly impacted in a lot of ways by the First World War. Um, if you could talk a little bit about. What it went through its financial difficulties um, Why they were so intent on keeping it open um, Even in sort of the worst of times um, and then and then I'll we'll go from there
0: so, uh, The World War one chapter was In many ways the most difficult for me to write because the sources were quite thin uh, So you don't know as much about the zoo in World War one as I think we would like uh, the, the the truth is, of course, that it was a very, very difficult time that the British blockade made the import of foodstuffs very, very trying, very difficult for the Berlin Zoo. Uh, so many animals did die on that basis alone. Uh, the income was drastically reduced, which led the board to have to turn to the Kaiser on numerous occasions. To uh, to have him fill in the blanks with uh, in the financial uh, in in the books because the, uh, the zoo simply just didn't have didn't have enough money to cover what were becoming exorbitant costs and also uh, and also a decline in visitorship. Um, in many ways, it's it's the war itself is a, a major issue. Major problem for the zoo, but it's also the uh, the period afterwards when uh, inflation hits the Weimar, Weimar Germany, and uh, at that point the zoo is in in many ways much more difficult circumstances than it was during the war. Uh, and in the Weimar in the Weimar period, uh, the zoo does shut very briefly for a few months, uh, but it's the it's the only time in the history of the berlin zoo that it actually shuts when we when you think about it as you well know when you think about the turbulent history of germany uh from 1844 until uh, when i finished the book in 1990 to think that those are the only months that the berlin zoo closed is quite remarkable uh, and it gives some sense of just how difficult it was during the weimar republic uh, the The financial situation was simply catastrophic
1: yeah i was I wanted to ask you about this. I was struck by the number of times the zoo was saved by Berliners um, through their generosity. Um, even in the worst circumstances, they would donate money and 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 things to keep it open um, i don 't know if you really if you found out anecdotally why this was so important to people living in Berlin. Uh, or not, um, but if you could speak to that just a little bit,
0: yes. So it happens on uh, numerous occasions that Berliners themselves, uh, even though their situation is incredibly demanding, they uh, they uh, bring food, money, uh, they bring fuel, so sometimes wood and coal to try to keep the animals warm. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a bad winter during the war, or what have you, and they do they do it in, in World War One, they do it in between the wars, uh, when newspapers are asking Berliners to dig into their pockets and come out and help the Berlin Zoo, and they do, um, they do it, uh, of course, during World War Two as well. They do it during the Berlin blockade uh, when the Berlin Zoo suffered again tremendously. Uh, so, at uh, on, on, on numerous flashpoints in history. Uh, Berliners do uh, rescue their zoo. The state does as well. The state does try to fill in the gaps, but it's it really comes down to Berliners themselves. Um, and that connection, yeah, you know, it's 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 not been very easy for me to figure out exactly why Berliners in particular, because it does seem to be idiosyncratic to Berlin, uh, not just so other other zoos in other cities, in Frankfurt and what have you. All, they also have a connection to the population, but it's certainly not as deep, not as profound as it is in uh, Berlin. I've tried to figure out exactly why. its uh, I'm not sure it is, it, it's, it's evident. Uh, it's, I think, related to the 19th century boom that Berlin goes through, which is both positive in terms of people being able to Go on vacations, uh, more vacation time, a little bit more money in their pocket, and that kind of thing. Um, but it's also it's also a dizzying time. It's a disorienting time uh, when uh, Berlin is growing tremendously. Uh, it's it's a very, um, <clears throat> in many ways, sterile, sometimes dangerous urban environment uh, that uh, is really unrivaled in Germany, uh, and I think it. I think that tends to lead people um, toward the zoo, and I do sort of offer my conclusion, some thoughts about that, about um, Berliners in particular, but it also extends as the 20th century goes on to more than just Berliners, um, looking for solace, looking for uh, comfort uh, in in the zoo, in the animals, in the 19th century, and also also in the humans that are on display.
1: Yeah, I, I, I wasn't expecting you to have, you know, the the answer. Um, it was just something that I was I was fascinated by, that they would come back over and over and over again to, to financially or materially support an institution that was clearly very important to them throughout its entire history. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get to the Nazi period, I want to talk a little bit about how the view of the animals evolved um sort of beginning with how they saw the animals you know sort of in or, and how they organized them in the zoo sort of in a a in, you know taxidermy um mm-hmm. to and then how they you know viewed the animals in terms of having emotions being lonely um and how that evolved in the first um you know first 80 years or so of the zoo because um, the Nazi case is a, is a separate case and we should t- t- treat that separately. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, I want to just give people an indication of, of, of how the animals themselves were viewed um, at first and then how it evolved.
0: Right. Uh, well, I find, I found this actually fascinating uh, from my own knowledge that, uh, <coughs> that, the, the view of the animals evolves. So it's not, it's obviously not the animals that are changing. It, it's us. And mm. so that's what I, I think is a tremendous contribution from animal human history is to give this insight into, into the human species, uh, and how they are changing, how their views are changing. So the, uh, originally, which is maybe not that surprising, uh, the animals were viewed, uh, simply as, Uh, objects to be displayed uh they didn't have emotions they uh were uh, dispensable uh in the london zoo for example um they just let the monkeys die uh in the winter time and then they could replace them the
1: fall yeah i I was staggered by that 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 they would just Mm -hmm. let them go
0: (laughs) yeah um and that was just the that was just the mindset at the time uh it wasn't that these zookeepers were particularly evil or anything, um, but that's just how people viewed animals. Uh, animals were were part of nature, and nature was to be subdued, uh, there's, have dominion over over the animals, which is uh, a, a biblical reference that still, at the time, held uh, an awful lot of weight. Um, there was a real feeling that, that God had put humans on Earth to dominate nature, and it was theirs to do with it uh, as they wished. So that was that was really the mentality, and you can see it in the early guidebooks as well, uh, the visitor guides to the Berlin Zoo. It's all about dominating nature, and that these once dangerous animals uh, can now be viewed by humans at their leisure, and we put them in their place. And that kind of mentality, uh, and then it, it does it, it it changes. It changes slowly, um, but certainly by you know, by by World War One and uh, three years after World War One the feeling is much more that animals can experience emotions that animals can suffer uh that the uh, that there should be some interest in their well-being that uh humans don't have carte blanche to deal with uh the other travelers on this planet as they will uh and we begin to see it as well in the transformation of the method of display so originally zoos simply displayed by taxonomy so by species classification and it would make perfect sense for the berlin zoo uh in the 19th century to have uh, 30 types of deer displayed in uh different in, in one each deer in each cage uh separately uh we don't do that anymore taxonomy and and education in that in that way which is what motivated the berlin zoo at the time uh, just doesn't hold water for us anymore. Uh, we're much more interested in ecology and in what we interpret as the happiness of the animals in captivity. Uh, so uh, bigger enclosures, herd animals being displayed in herds. Uh, this is the kind. This is the kind of uh, view we have now. So, uh, and really, this is a, a, again a tremendous, a tremendous work by Nigel Rothfeld's "Savages and Beasts," um, which talks about the origins of the zoo and this transformation into our understanding of their happiness. We're now motivated by their happiness and by uh, a respect for, the, for their existence on earth. Uh, that certainly wasn't the case. But it, 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 it was a very slow process over time and I, I recognize that today zoos are still controversial, but uh, at a minimum we can say that their, their, their motivation uh, is not the same as it was. Uh, when these zoos were established.
1: Yeah, one of the really, um, I think, highlights of your book is that you really, really, really demonstrate how the directors of the zoo, um, from the first director all the way up to when you finish your book, how they all have their own sort of imprint on the zoo. Um, And you really flesh out their characters um, really well. Um, You get a sense of who each of these people really are um and i obviously can't ask you about each one of them individually um but i'm wondering if you have a favorite one one that you found most interesting that you want to you know people to really know about uh mm-hmm.
0: oh, i, I, I hard to pick my my favorite uh berlin zoo director uh it, there certainly were a number of luminaries along the way so so both uh, really transforms the zoo in the late 19th century into a spectacular showpiece of Berlin. Um, he takes it from a rudimentary, maybe not particularly pleasant location into uh, something that becomes a tourist destination from, for people around the world. Uh, but I, I, I think if I had to choose, I would say uh, the first director of the zoo after the war, so in 1945. Uh, First female director of any zoo, Katerina Heinrod, and herself quite remarkable woman. Uh, She had, uh, uh, she during the war uh, had to fill in when some of the zookeepers were called to the front. And uh, she nearly died from a crocodile bite when she was trying to feed it and was very, very close and practically last rites. Um, But she recovered uh, somewhat miraculously and uh, emerges after the war to become the first female. Uh, director of a German zoo, which is a, a, a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, and she really, really saves the zoo. Uh, there, there's no question, when you read this material, there's no question that that zoo should have shut down in 1945. It only had 90, 91 animals. Uh, there were, there were corpses, human and animal corpses all over the zoo. There were, uh, there was destruction and no kind of infrastructure really to speak of. Um, of course, it was dire straits in Germany as well. So, food and and, uh, and, and fuel and heat uh, for the zoo and for the animals was, was practically non-existent. Uh, and still, somehow, in those circumstances, uh, Katharina Heinroth uh, resuscitates the zoo almost single-handedly, and, uh, and makes it once again into a showpiece of the city.
1: Yeah, I was like I said, I was I was struck by the by by her uh definitely and and just all the characters that had inhabited that position uh throughout the history of the zoo all right uh let's now turn to the zoo under the, in the Nazi period um, when we talk about the zoo itself, I think it might be helpful if you give everybody just a a brief overview of Nazi environmental policy um because this is an area that people have started to study a little bit more in depth recently um because they they have Sort of very progressive thoughts about the environment. Let um, me talk about the policy, and then we'll talk about how that fits into their worldview.
0: Uh, I might, I might say uh, that there's probably better people than me to talk about uh, the environmental policies. Uh, I was particularly interested in a subset of that, I would say, which is their policies towards animals. Uh, and there, uh, they really do—they really do—put their money where their mouth is, and they uh, bring in very, very advanced for the time, animal protection laws. Uh, so the animal protection law itself that's passed, and that's to Germany is uh, the most advanced in the world. It prescribes two years in jail for anybody who as much as mistreats an animal. Uh, they also do uh, a number of things to protect animals. They outlaw uh, cockfights, they outlaw the clipping of dog ears, they outlaw uh, hunting with buckshot. Uh, even, even restaurants are required to uh, boil lobsters quickly. To bring their suffering to an end. So this is remarkable, especially because, as people know about the Nazi period, the paradox about how they're treating humans and animals is, uh, is enough to make your head spin. Um, so that so the, so their uh, interest and concern about uh, animals is, uh, is 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 real. Uh, eventually, it will be sacrificed on the altar of war and conquest. We know that. But at the time, especially before the war, it is very real. And the other, the other uh, major advance that the Nazis make is to outlaw vivisection, which is surgery on live animals. Now, animal protection societies have been asking for this for decades and decades from practically every German government, and the Nazis implemented uh, almost immediately, without question. Uh, so, on one level, the Nazis looked incredibly advanced in their treatment of animals
1: yeah and and so but there's a sinister side to this um to link how does this um how does the zoo i guess in particular fit into their and so the way they view the world um you know they view how they view nature um and then sort of their place in it And, and and it's all very hierarchical um
0: That's right, so uh the Berlin Zoo, especially under its director at the time, Lutz heck, uh plays a very important role in communicating the Nazi message about race about a hierarchy among races uh and Lutz heck and the Berlin Zoo use the animal world as an analogy for that uh Demonstrating, for example, that uh, that in nature when races intermingle, uh, the product is inferior, as they would say. Uh, that clearly uh, there's a preference for predators. You know, predatory animals are uh, strong. They are skilled. Uh, they dominate, and these are the animals to be admired. So the the Berlin Zoo does take the Nazi message and communicate it. Uh, to the public in this way. And Lutz Heck is very, very happy to do so. Uh, the director of the Berlin Zoo is very, very close with leading Nazis. He's close with Hermann Goering. He has interactions with Joseph Goebbels. He provides Hermann Goering with his lion cubs, for example. Uh, uh, some listeners would know about Hermann, Hermann Goering's penchant for these lion cubs that he that he lived with until they became uh Of an age that they would be dangerous, and then Lutz Heck from the Berlin Zoo would go to Hermann Göring's house and provide him with new, new lions and uh, take away the ones that had, that had gotten a bit bigger. So uh, uh, he was he was very interested in promoting the Nazi message. He believed that his father, who had also been uh, the director of the Berlin Zoo for nearly forty years. Uh, he also was was an ardent nazi uh, he he believed in the message of uh of racial hierarchies and not intermingling uh and uh, and and other kinds of nazi messages like that that would also in their view resonate about the animal world.
1: Yeah, I I was I was struck by um Hermann Goering's relationship to the zoo. Um I mean I knew about the lion cubs um it It hits you when you see the pictures you have in your book um of him holding a lion cub um Can you talk about um herman Goering specifically did you did you look into this um as to why maybe on a on a personal level he was so interested in this um and and what he did to ke- sort of keep the zoo going even during the war and sort of make sure they had not everything they needed but um really until the very end the last couple of years of the war. Things really got bad. The zoo really didn't suffer too too much, um, it seems during the early stages of the war. Mm.
0: Well, uh, I, to, to answer your question, I don't I don't know why Herman Goering was interested in those lions. That's a great question. Uh, what I can say, though, is that it would have been well known that he was interested uh, in those lines and uh, promoted himself as a as a uh, as a lover of animals. Uh, you know, the images of Hitler with Blondie, his dog, were also extremely common in the Third Reich. But this this, this the image of Göring with his lines, uh, that was on postcards uh, that ran as shorts before the main feature in movie theaters so uh Germans at the time would have been very familiar with that image of of Goering as a uh, and his pet lions cuddling them and, and uh, you know play playing with them in his house and those kinds of things um, but he does do his best about uh, to keep the Berlin zoo going as much as he can now in nineteen already in one thousand nine hundred and forty one it 's bombed not too badly uh but in 1943 it's uh, it's bombed mercilessly and uh tremendous damage and tremendous animal suffering as well um, so there's only so much gring can do of course uh to try to protect the zoo but he does uh, uh he does provide it, uh finances as much as possible uh and uh a few other the small things that he does he tries to uh, ship off some of the animals at the outset to to zoos that are maybe a bit safer, but of course the problem is there's no zoo that's really that safe uh, in Germany during the war. Uh, so he does try to protect the zoo as much as he can, but there's not a lot he can do. Uh, the, uh, but what you suggested as well, which is really I, I think again eye-opening, is that uh, the zoo remains incredibly popular during the war. Uh, in fact, uh, and I think the stats that surprised me most the Berlin Zoo has its greatest attendance in its history up to that point, not since, but up to that point, has its greatest history, uh, has its greatest attendance in its history during the war, during the Second World War. And this uh, is also echoed at uh, the Frankfurt Zoo, the Halle Zoo, the Leipzig Zoo. The zoos are incredibly popular during the war. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I I was struck by that too. I I was wondering if it was escapism um, trying to Put their mind on something else other than the war. Um, I mean, they did have a lot of variety of entertainments. Though they had theater and uh, music, so yeah, I I, it it was fascinating that that was the case. Um, I do want to backtrack a little bit on you and ask you about Albert Speer and wanting to move the zoo. Um, And this was quite a a controversy, quite a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. If you could talk a little bit about. Uh, about this and the, the sort of the rivalry between the director and Speer about the zoo and maybe opening another zoo and all that. Right.
0: Right. Well, I was really pleased to find this. This was in the, in the Bundesarchiv, in the Federal Archive in Lichterfelde in Berlin. There was a, a great correspondence between uh, between Lettich from the Berlin Zoo and. Uh, City planning and Speer's letters are there too. It was really, it was really uh, quite dramatic and, and, and quite a, uh, uh, an entertaining, anyway. It's fine for me. Uh, but yes, it, it became clear early on that uh, Speer was going to uh, remake the city of Berlin, and in the image that both he and Hitler had agreed upon. And this required a major uh, north-south boulevard. Uh, and the Berlin Zoo was essentially in the way. Now, what Lutzhek had done just before Speer uh, begins his planning, which turns out to be a, a, a tremendous error, is he had suggested that a second zoo be built in the Grunewald, in, the, in a big park-like area uh, in Berlin. Uh, and he had a bit of a different concept for the zoo, it would be more open air, more enclosures, uh, no no cages, that kind of thing. Uh, people could see it from walking along the paths as well, they wouldn't necessarily have to pay admission to see everything uh, in the zoo. But uh, Lothack was just so uh, excited about the zoo and about displaying animals that he thought the second zoo in Berlin. Uh, would be a good idea. Uh, well, Spare, of course, used this as an opportunity to say, well, maybe the zoo should be moved to there, to the Grunewald, so that he can have access uh, for his major building projects. Uh, at which point, uh, Lutz But said no. The second zoo is a very bad idea, uh, and that that would destroy the zoo. And of course, the zoo has to remain where it is, with its iconic historic buildings, um, its its uh, huge terrain, which uh, allowed Berliners to take in the airs, and and uh, and because of its uh, association with Berlin, at the location that it's at. So he really fight Spear on this uh, and uh, is determined that the zoo is not going to move after all and uh, uh, Speer seems to, seems to pay it no mind uh, he had already moved the zoo in Nuremberg to make way for his monumental architecture there so it seemed that he was determined to do the same thing in Berlin and he was not going to uh, worry whether the, the, the lowly uh, zoo director Lutz Heck opposed his plans uh, and as it turned out, the war commenced in 1939, and that put the
1: uh, prospect of moving the zoo on the back burner. on the back burner. Because uh, it, you, you point this out in your book that they were willing. Speer was willing to do it under tremendous financial costs. Um, mm-hmm. It was going to be extremely expensive um, to move the zoo, um, and I, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that. That he didn't care about the cost, but, uh, um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I get that in because I, I found that sort of interchange, uh, very fascinating. Okay. So the, the war ends, you've, you've already talked a little bit about what the condition of the zoo was after the war, uh, pretty bad. You mentioned 91 animals left. Um, and you mentioned the direct, the new, the director after the war. Um, let's talk about the zoo in divided Germany. Um, and sort of the, the east-west divide, particularly I want to talk a little bit about East Germany um, and how they used the zoo sort of as a way of trumpeting international communism, success of the GDR, all that. And and the director, um, who was a Nazi and then became a socialist um, yes. and became very famous. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll hit some of those things and I'll ask you some follow-ups
0: uh well yes of course so after the war the the, the city is divided uh if it's not obvious that it's permanent uh, in the early years after the war it becomes rel- relatively clear that the the situation is not going to resolve itself in the immediate future um and so in 1955 now with the uh with the division r- relatively permanent by then uh east uh, germany decides to uh, build a zoo in its in its zone of east berlin uh and it becomes a great societal project a uh, tremendous amount of participation by east germans tremendous excitement about the project uh and it was clearly to rival the original zoo which ended up in west berlin uh after the war uh and the uh, the communists felt that they had a huge advantage in that they could access some of the animals from their uh from their socialist brother countries um such as vietnam which supplied uh an awful lot of the animals in the first years uh, to the east berlin zoo uh and uh different different factories contributed to the uh, to the zoo, they would sort of have these uh, uh, fundraising campaigns for a particular animal, for example, especially uh, if it were related somewhat to uh, to the kind of uh, product that they produced. So, for example, the uh, uh, you know, some fridge some refrigeration company purchased a. Uh, polar bear for the for the East German zoo um, and this kind of thing. So it, it was it was it was a really uh, major project, and uh, you know even up to uh, the collapse of East Germany and unification of Germany in 1990, uh, East Germans uh, really really held that uh, that uh, zoo in East Berlin close to their hearts. And, uh, not the least because of the director, as you mentioned, Heinrich Data. And, uh, Data was, uh, he was the only director in the history of the zoo. So from 1955 until, until the end in 1990, uh, he was the director. Uh, and he would have been very well known to East Germans through his radio programs and he was constantly interviewed and he had some really uh, terrific successes, uh, with the zoo. And it is interesting that he, he was, he was uh, a Nazi, especially in his student days at the University of Leipzig, and he uh, didn't talk too much about it. But what's also interesting is that when he, does, when he does become the director of the East Berlin Zoo, he does tone down at least the rhetoric around his, uh, around his zoo. So, you know, if a giraffe is born in the zoo, it wasn't always a great... A great victory for socialism or anything like that. Um, he he just talked about it in biological terms and, and in, uh, in in terms of animal populations and things like that. So he did he did try to uh, step back from being too much of an ideologue with the uh, with, with, with in his position as director of the East Berlin Zoo. Um, and uh, sometimes I think of the movie Goodbye Lenin at the end where it's uh, it's the uh, it's the astronaut or cosmonaut uh, Sigmund Yen who's imagined as leading East Germany in a in a kinder and um, more progressive way, and uh, I think it could have easily been heinrich Data. Uh, East Germans would that would have really resonated with East Germans as well a very well respected figure uh who uh, really nobody had a bad word to say about him.
1: yeah he you made it it was very clear in your book that he was very well liked um even in the west he had the respective colleagues um yeah. in the west um yeah
0: including including his friend uh, the director
1: of the west berlin zoo katrina Heinroth. yeah i was i found that story about the escaped baboon um fascinating <laughs> that he he the, filled out all the paperwork and captured the baboon and drove it drove it to west germany himself um <laughs> through great through great annoyance i'm sure to him um okay so as a way to wrap up discussion of your book um what are one or two things you would like people listening and people who read the book to take away from it?
0: I think I, when I started this project, I I was a bit concerned that some of the major histories of Berlin didn't really mention the zoo. So Alexandra Ritchie's uh, Faust Metropolis, for example, which is a terrific book, uh, talks about the zoo in passing, but doesn't Give it any attention on uh, on, on its own uh, and uh, Riba's, uh the couple volume history of of the of Berlin also does not really even give it a footnote so well, one of one of the most important takeaways for me from the project is that the Berlin zoo is not a footnote it's it stands on its own as a topic of importance uh, uh, I just uh cite for example in the nineteenth century, the biggest restaurant in uh, Berlin was in the zoo, you know, a place for twelve thousand guests. Uh it was the zoo was much more than just a display of animals. It was a stage on which Berlin life played out. People went there to see, to be seen. Charities held fundraisers there. Uh, uh, it was it was it was just the site of Berlin society. Uh, it wasn't the only site, but it was certainly one of the most important sites, and uh, for many, at uh, many points in the history, the most popular. So I think that's one important takeaway: is to to elevate the Berlin Zoo uh, to an importance that it deserves in the history of Berlin. Um, the other I think important takeaway is that uh I was really struck by how Berliners throughout history as they see reflected in the zoo are aware of the pitfalls of their own civilization. Uh life in the modern industrial societies is difficult and people recognize that it requires uh it requires us to work uh typically long and hard. Um, the environment can be, often be deadening. Uh, the zoo offers an escapism. It offers a way of looking at life in a different way. It sees it in many ways. It's a little bit nostalgic, uh, uh, back to a golden era, when people lived more in harmony with the environment. Uh, so, so that, I think, is really important about the Berlin Zoo. It was a mirror for Berlin society. And uh, in that mirror, people did not always see reflected a society that they thought was perfect. Uh, people, uh, Berliners throughout history, have been uh, extremely aware of the limits uh, of their society, and that even though uh, society is essentially more advanced now, um, that a lot has been lost, especially the connection to nature and the connection to one another.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Um, I want to say before I ask you our final question, uh, this is a great book. I uh, really enjoyed it. It has lots of great pictures in it too. Um, never underestimate the, the power of good pictures. Um, um, so, but before I let you let you go, um, what are you working on now?
0: Well, I'm just starting to look at uh, uh, a project on Night of the Long Knives. So. Uh, in the past two books, I've really enjoyed using essentially a micro history approach to illuminate a bigger issue in history. So with the firm, my book on the Stasi, I looked at small districts, uh, sort of a geographically limited, uh, approach and, uh, really got to know those two small districts of the Stasi and, uh, how they operated in them. So that was that micro history. Uh, I really enjoyed writing. And this I also see as a micro history, taking one institution and looking at it under a microscope and seeing what it can tell us about broader trends, uh, so I thought I would uh, uh, move into the Nazi period and try something similar. Night of the Long Knives, as you know, is uh, June 1934. Uh, really, the first the first murderous rampage by the Nazis, and I feel that it's been not forgotten, but uh, put put under or, or fallen under the shadow of uh, some of the later atrocities. Uh, which, for understandable reasons, has been more interested in. But this being the first, I think it offers an opportunity to to look at questions about of, of complicity of the German public um, at a time when the president was still alive, Hindenburg is still alive. Um, uh, the Nazis are not precarious, but uh, they haven't solidified their position quite yet. Uh, and, and here we have a German population that is willing to accept state-sanctioned murder.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating, and uh, there's no no pressure, but uh, hopefully when you finish, you'll, you'll come back on the show and talk about it with us. Um, <laughs> um, so I want to thank you again for uh, being on the show. Um, I really enjoyed having you. Um, and I also want to thank everybody for listening to New Books in German Studies, uh, again, part of the New Books Network, and we will see everyone next time. <laughs>